Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Welcome back to Decouple. Today, I'm joined by David Watson, a nuclear safety engineer from the UK. He has over 10 years experience in consulting, supporting the operation, construction, and decommissioning of nuclear plants in the UK and the US, and working with clients throughout Europe, North America, and Japan. He's also the editor-in-chief of the Generation Atomic blog and a member of the UK Next Generation Nuclear Industry Council. And he recently started an Instagram channel called Atomic Trends, which he refers to as the Nuclear Dream Factory. David, welcome to the show. Hello. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. I think we're probably all wondering a little bit about this nuclear dream factory. I, I like to give my guests <laughs> a, an opportunity to give me their kind of human introduction. Tell me about some nerdiness or, or <laughs> however yeah. you strike up a conversation at a, at a nerdy little dinner party here. Maybe tell us about the nuclear dream factory. Well, I guess I should tell you what, how I got to that point. Um, you know, what, why did I even think about a nuclear dream factory? So I'm, I'm a physicist by training. So I studied physics at university. When I was a teenager, I was really fascinated by Stephen Hawking um, and sci-fi, things like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So I was really into the physics. I'm actually a, a, a second-gen nuclear guy, uh, to use a nuclear term there. Uh, so my dad worked in the industry, mechanical engineer. So I was aware of nuclear. and I even went to some open days at universities to look at engineering. Um, but it just seemed a little bit dry to me, a bit too empirical, practical, and physics just seemed way cooler. I mean, quantum mechanics, relativity, and all of that. I wanted to understand it, so I went to uni, uh, did my physics for four years, got to the end of it, and by this time, this is sort of, uh, I guess, the end of the of the noughties. Climate change was obviously becoming a massive issue. And I wanted to get involved, in, and I knew about nuclear from from my dad. So I th it was just kind of obvious to me. And I, I thought that nuclear would just was just kind of a mushroom to, again, to use a nuclear term. Um, and I just thought it was obvious that we take up nuclear. So I joined the industry. I was really positive about it, um, but it just didn't seem to quite go as I thought it would. And I don't know whether that. All the resistance to nuclear and, and the sort of the slowness with which we've adopted it. I don't know whether that led to to me taking a sabbatical year, but anyway, I took a sabbatical year about six years ago now. I decided to travel by bike um, around, well, Western Europe to start with, and then in Central America. And I think that was really my environmental awakening uh, in terms of I saw particularly in Central America, you see fresh deforestation, um, whether that's for palm oil or whether it's for cattle. Um, there's a lot of environmental damage there. There's big programs to build new canals, for example, in Nicaragua um, that would flood rivers and indigenous communities. I even did a stint on an organic farm volunteering in Spain. I came back, I guess, from that with a different perspective. And I almost lost faith in nuclear I, I was almost convinced at some point uh, you know maybe this is just it really is as bad as everyone says um and i kind of had a i guess a period of introspection uh, and i started hanging around on um reddit and things like that and i remember someone said to me someone said in a in a comment on reddit something along the lines of wow i mean if these nuclear guys actually spend as much time out in the real world as they do complaining here on reddit they might actually achieve something <laughs> which i thought was quite funny and quite true it made me sit up and think you know what i should probably actually try and do something so just moaning about it um so about three three four years ago now i, I started to get i guess involved in the advocacy world um i started writing um, blogging so that's always been one of my passions writing and literature and I guess the region uh, to start out, you, you're just you're just writing articles for your mom to read. Let's be honest. Mm -hmm. I was working on my own, and I just wasn't getting any traction. So I reached out to Generation Atomic, uh, led by Eric Meyer, and uh, we did, came up with the idea that I would take that blog over and relaunch it on Medium, 
And so I write and I edit for other people. And that's brought me into the, the advocacy world. So how did I get to Atomic Trends? Well, um, I, I just got fed up with there not being any positive imagery of nuclear. And all you ever were shown was just pictures of nuclear plants, which you know we can geek out on and enjoy, but a lot of people just don't connect with that. They just see industry, mess, big rusting things. And I, I just wanted to, I guess, create some brand alignment and, and some positive imagery that, for nuclear. So that, that's the idea of the, the nuclear dream factory, as you said. And I'll put a link in the show notes, but I mean, it's, it's uh, I think, a very sort of forward-looking vision that sort of couples nuclear energy with rewilding and yeah. and uh, just kind of imagining what a future could look like, um, you know, with the with an embracing of the technology. It's 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 really uh, interesting imagery and, and really high quality stuff. You must have some graphic design skills under your belt to, to be producing it. Uh, <laughs> still still learning, but um, yeah, that's very kind of you to say so. I, I, I tried to set myself the challenge of not using photos of nuclear plants because you're so tempted yeah. to do that. I mean, I, I certainly did for the uh, the cover photo for the podcast and uh, chose that, you know, epic. Well, you, you chose the nicest one. An iconic photo of, of Diablo Canyon because it's just, it is, uh, you know, just a, a beautiful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think if there was incredible. a be- if there was a beauty contest for nuclear plants, Diablo Canyon would send yeah. be somewhere near yeah. the top. Yeah. Well, let's let's circle back to a few of the things you you mentioned in your introduction. There, um, you mentioned climate change becoming a massive issue. Um, I'm not sure what you're saying maybe late '90s, early 2000s, and you also talked about this kind of maybe this nuclear renaissance that was kind of in yeah. the in the books at around the same time. You know, as an outsider, I lived in the UK for a year in the late hmm. 80s, early 90s. I mean, I was a child. I don't remember much. But um, the thing I kind of remember about the UK is people love animals. There's, you know, I think in the <laughs> charity section, like more money is donated to animal charities than like just about anything else. Um, yeah. But I, I did sort of get a sense that the UK really has undergone a, a bit of a 180 turn on on its attitude towards climate change. And I mean, you can find polls that will say anything, but, you know, apparently I just looked at a poll, 67% of people in the UK want the UK as a, as a world leader on tackling climate change. Again, mm-hmm. I mean, if you if you pair that question with, well, at what cost, I'm sure the numbers would be different. But, I, I, you know, I do, definitely do get that sense that that climate change is high on the on the, the minds of voters. Um so yeah, can you tell us a little bit about that that uh, that change in attitudes, perhaps towards climate change, or what what the vibe is like yeah. on the streets? Yeah, I guess there was, I guess in coverage going back to the first half of the noughties, let's say they would whenever they would have a section on climate change on the news, they would put on the skeptic as well, you know, as if it was like a balance to provide balance. But of course, really, what they were doing was putting the person who represented, I don't know, 0.01% of scientists, and people got the impression that there was some debate to be had. And maybe there was still some debate back then, but it's pretty clear now (laughs) that that there is no debate to be had. Climate change is happening. Um, Yes, we have a culture of of charity giving, and yes, animal charities are really a big part of that. I guess David Attenborough, um, he's... Now, he's had some documentaries recently, but even going back to really early stuff, well, not early for him because he's been around for so long, but early in the sort of the planet Earth kind of phase, which I guess started about 2004, there was always a theme there of climate change. So mm-hmm. I think I think because he's so popular and, and he put it at, at the front and center of what he was talking about, maybe people were more receptive to it. And I think another part of it is that there's always, it's never been a partisan issue here. So Labour, um, the, the main sort of centre-left party and the Conservatives, the centre-right party, have pretty much always, um, they've always, there's always been some people, I guess, on the fringes of the Conservatives that were kind of sceptic, but I think generally they've, they've it's, the science has been accepted and Labour the same. And maybe we'll come to this, but I think, the same, the same applies to nuclear power, which is one thing that we have going for us in the UK is this bipartisan support. And I mean, that's that's really astounding because this is a culture wars issue, you know, in, in many of the places I can think about, um, you know, Canada to some degree, the US, you know, everything's a culture war in the United States, it seems. But, 
usually there's this really strong left-right division. You know, I'm not sure if that's maybe changing with time, but when we were talking earlier, you were saying that there was this kind of period in the early, I won't say the early 2000s, but what I mean is like the year 2000 to 2010, the first decade of the millennium, yeah. the second millennium, um, where there, there was this talk of a nuclear renaissance. And um, I think you had a labor government in power and you know, they, were, yeah. they were pushing for nuclear and the conservatives were backing them. I mean, that's just, it's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'm not an expert on the, the political history of nuclear in the UK, but I think a lot of it comes from the fact it really was a state-run enterprise. Um, it, so in the past, there was a central electricity board and the, the nuclear program as well was, was centrally run. And there's a bit, always been a lot of organized labor and union activity um, amongst nuclear workers. So maybe that's a part of it. I don't know. All the all the unions in the UK tend to support nuclear because of that, because of the quality jobs, um, and it's, because it's, it bring it brings jobs to the regions as well. We, we have a really big problem in the UK, and it's quite far, it's quite high up the agenda for the gov the current government in that there's a lot of regional inequality. So there's hmm. London is is grown so much in the last thirty years economically, and the the rest of the country. I guess post uh, 1980s, post Thatcher has has not grown anywhere near the the, the same pace, and and some areas actually slightly slightly contracting in some years. Mm -hmm. uh, Liverpool and, and areas of the northeast still contract on some years. So it's, there's it's, a real challenge there of, of bringing yeah. quality jobs away from London, um, and that's something that nuclear provides. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, you know, in terms of this issue of regionalization and organized labor, largely supporting nuclear. I was I was tagged on a post on Twitter today because um, I, I made a placard for a protest recently in Ontario. We phased out coal using nuclear energy. So I had a placard that said, you know, this atom kills coal. And um, someone tagged me to uh, I think it was a Scottish coal mining union that had put out a pamphlet saying like nuclear kills coal. And, you know, back then for them, that was a bad thing. You know, they were advocating yeah. for their jobs in the coal mines. But it's funny how the, sc the script kind of flipped, you know, accidentally me. Mm. I think I was referencing, you know, like this guitar kills fascists or something when I made that that placard. But um yeah, it, it is interesting, and it's, it's interesting to hear that there's this real, real regionalization in terms of development. And I think you were just touching on that. You were saying that I think the nuclear plants are obviously not in the greater London area. They're more dispersed coastally around the country, and those are real yeah. focuses of, of development. What do those towns look like? They're, they're generally, the, the, the nuclear plants are generally in quite deprived areas. Um, and I know, for example, um, Copeland, which is an area in the northwest where where Sellafield is located, I know that around the plant, the the GDP is about thirty five percent higher than the rest of the region. So it's a it's a real huge effect. Um, and same, you know, if you go to where Sizewell B is in Suffolk, it's it's a long. It takes quite a long time to get there um, from you know from London, even though it's doesn't seem that far on the map and there are not that many places to work around there um, mm. and, and so Sizewell B is really supporting not only providing the the, the the sort of the high skill technical jobs but it's all the supporting industry all the hotels everything around there sort of revolves around the plant and that's why uh, <laughs> there's a campaign to, to try and stop Sizewell C uh, from happening that will be uh, it's a Another twin um, European pressurized water reactor mm -hmm. project, a twin of H H Hinkley Point C. And um, there's a group that's opposing it locally. And there's another, there's a sort of a counter movement to that that want it. And some, some people have gone out and graffitied the stop size well C signs with the phrase jobs, not snobs. Right. Now, I don't know if you know what a snob is, if, if that's a British term, but it's... No, no, we use it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's an interesting tension there that actually, the, and this is something that just generally applies in certainly in the UK and probably in other countries too. The places where nuclear plants are are really pro-nuclear because they are used to it. They know what it does what, for the community and they don't want it to go away. Um, mm -hmm. There was a, It's a real tragedy that this other project that was supposed to go ahead in northwest wales 
in Anglesey, again, a really deprived area, that project fell through. And the local communities, you know, they're up in arms, really, because there were all these apprentices lined up, um, young guys and girls, to, to imagining, oh, OK, I can live in the, my, where, you know, near where I grew up. I can work here for the rest of my life if I want. This plant's going to be here for probably 100 years. And uh, to see to see that fall through is it's a real shame. Yeah. And I mean, we're going to we're going to get into this in a bit more detail. But, you know, in our conversations, we were, we were talking about climate change, about some of the legally binding commitments that the UK has signed mm. on. To. Um, <clears throat> I never know really what it means to, you know, this get to net zero. Does that mean zero carbon electricity? Does that mean all energy is, is completely decarbonized? Does that mean we're burning some carbon, but we're capturing others and achieving a kind of. Yeah a net zero emissions. I think that's what it means. But in any case, yes. I mean, you guys, you guys have signed on to that. Um, you have an energy system. But one of the things that you said that really struck me was that um, basically of all of the current electricity generation infrastructure, um, basically nothing that's presently operating will be, hmm. will be operating at that 2050 deadline. Everything's going to need to have been swapped out, whether that's a, a wind turbine with a 20 year lifespan or really, really the entire nuclear fleet, which um, yep. I guess, there's different generations. The first generation, uh, the Magnox, I guess, has, has basically been decommissioned and the uh, the AGR fleet is being decommissioned. So walk us through a little bit about what the kind of current grid looks like and what we're talking about in terms of an energy transition. OK, yeah, so we're it's, it's a bit of a mix in the UK. We're about so for our electricity, it's about 40 percent gas. Uh, we've got our own offshore um, oil fields which are being depleted now and every year it's less and less gas from our fields and it's more and more from Norway and uh, from Russia as well. So uh, coal has pretty much been phased out. We're down to like 2%. Hmm. And that's really the big success story, I guess, if you want to look for a success story in the last few years. Um, nuclear, uh, as you say, it's, we have an aging fleet. So we're, we're, we're just under 20% of electricity here from, from nuclear, but there's only one plant which will still be operating in 2030, um, which is the, the one pressurized water reactor we have. In 2030, the, not even 2050, in 2030, all the nuclear is offline except for one plant. Correct. And that's just a one unit plant. Like what does that mean for the sector? Because I mean, it's 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 been twenty percent of of the uh, electricity generation sector, and you talk about all these rural communities and the jobs. Like that's a that's a catastrophe. I mean, in terms yeah. of the expertise, the engineers, the highly skilled labor. That like that's like at the end of an era, really. It is now, of course, with the end of operations, not the end of the site. Right. So that so there will be work to take it the the plants apart bit by bit, but. There's, you're not going to need as many people. Wow. Um, so, so EDF. So, yeah, I should say, so all, all of our reactors are owned by the French state-owned <laughs> nuclear company. Um, there's a long history to that. But so EDF UK, if you like, is they're facing a big challenge now of how do they redeploy all these people from the AGRs, as you said, which are the advanced gas reactors over the next few years. Um, how do they redeploy them onto... Hinkley Point C or decommissioning or well they're hoping size will see um, but that's not that's obviously it's, that's still up for debate whether that will happen we can talk about that so I distracted you there you talked about coal's almost gone yeah gas, I think largely replaced it nuclear's 20 percent but on its way out to a large degree um, hydro wind solar what's what's left yeah so that that leaves about 37 percent I think uh, for renewables and about yeah half of that is is wind um a third of it is biomass um 10% solar uh 5% hydro and, and then just a few other a few percent just make up the difference like oil and diesel diesel right. gensets and things but yeah so the bio, the biomass is mostly uh, a big plant called Drax which is a, a beast of a plant 6 gigawatt um, and it's importing uh, wood chip from the southern United States. Uh, so that's quite a controversial plan. And they get a lot of subsidies to do that. So that's not that popular in the UK at the moment. 
Yeah, I, I was I was reading up on it a bit before the interview. Thirty thousand tons of wood pellets delivered every day. Um, they they claim an eighty percent reduction in emissions compared with coal, but I think those are highly disputed and really yeah. based upon the idea that trees kind of magically grow back right away. Or like it's... Yeah, I mean the thing with biomass, it's quite weird. This is at a European level. There's a there's a there's a law basically that says you just assume biomass has a zero emissions factor when you calculate. So you just, you don't have to prove it. I mean they they might go away and. Um, do some life cycle analysis and claim, you know, oh yeah, it's, it's all good. But on, on the books for a government, biomass they just put zero. So it's 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 quite handy if you're if you're trying to make your numbers add up. Uh, there's been some, I think there was an article yesterday in Financial Times about the creative accounting that goes on with biomass. And, and the reason I highlight this is because um, you talked about this net zero target. That it's legally binding. And I had to ask my friend who works at the Committee on Climate Change what that means, the legally binding part. I said, you know, what happens if they don't meet the target? Um, basically, there's a, there's a system of like judicial review that they would, in theory, force the government to do something. But of course, if you if you're late, you're late, and you can't just turn on a new magical nuclear plant. So, right. really, the government has a responsibility to be planning and making it work. Um, and there's this committee on climate change, this independent body, which advises the government on how it should do that. And they've said, yeah, renewables is going to be great, wind and solar, that's going to expand a lot. But you're still going to need almost 40% of electricity to come from what they call firm power. That means something you, that's dispatchable, something you can actually rely on being there. Mm -hmm. And so remember I said hydro is 5%, that's maxed out. You know, we've got no, there's no, nothing you can really add to that. We're, we're a small island with a lot of people. Yeah. Biomass, okay, you could expand it, but is that really sustainable? Um, is that helping air pollution? You know, when we consider these new reports on air pollution is actually killing probably twice as many people as we thought every year. What's the new number for fossil fuel? 7 million, 8 million people a year. Yeah. And I haven't delved into that and, and worked out how much how that works in terms of biomass, but presumably it's, it's not good news. So really, that leaves you only one option: nuclear. But no one's talking about it, and and it's interesting. Like you know, there's these subsidies and and this creative accounting for biomass, but nuclear, on the other hand, is facing um, you know being blacklisted from environmental, mm. social, corporate governance investment or social responsible investment funds. Um, it's, it's right. you know, being excluded from the, uh, what do you guys call it again in the EU? I guess you're not in the EU anymore, but the wow. economy. So that's it. So we're not in the EU, but the, the, the sustainable taxonomy, which is this basically a, a rubber stamp, a, a, a stamping for your product. So when you go to a bank and say, look, my, you know, I'm, my project is green, please give me some, some money. Um, uh, it's not as simple as that, obviously, but, but. This system is supposed to uh, flag up which projects are green or not. And this, this taxonomy, uh, they did a study and they looked at solar, they looked at wind, they looked at hydro, and they assessed all, you know, all these different technologies. And they said, yeah, great, that can go up. They, those can all go onto the taxonomy. But nuclear, well, we're not sure about that. We're not sure whether it meets the do no significant harm criteria. Um, it, it was, I don't know. I don't, for me, when you look at it, it just looks like they're applying special criteria to nuclear. That well, this, this they don't a, apply to anyone else. This was some breaking news that showed up in my feed today. There was a, an article in The Independent. Um, the title was Investors Shun Sizewell C Nuclear Power Plant. Um, and the quote was from the Aviva Investor Group, which says, mm. quote, we consider the potential ESG, the environmental, social, corporate governance impact in all of our investment decisions. Um, the ESG impact of nuclear is far from clear at the time, and we're not actively involved in any such investments. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's interesting. I mean, I think listeners of this podcast can very much see the environmental argument for, you know, the most energy dense form of, of energy generation, which means the least mining, no air pollution, no CO2. I mean, it's, yeah. you just, you don't understand how, how to sort of, yeah, 
how to make that argument beyond, beyond what we have. I, I, one thing I heard about UK power plants is that, um, I mean, and I saw there was a, um, a swimming party. <laughs> I think Nuclear for Net Zero did a, a, yep. a little stunt outside of Sizewell. But all the beaches are open between the power plants and the and the seashore. I mean, what, what is the local environmental impact like? I've heard that's, you know, in terms of the snobs, not, or sorry, jobs, not snobs people. Mm. Um, some of the objections to Sizewell, for instance, have been around, um, you know, impact on local birds and things like that. Like, what's what's your take on that? Yeah, so so it's quite funny because so all around around the nuclear plants in the UK. So as you said, they're all pretty much bar one. Um, they're all on the coast, and the more plants I visit, the more I realise ah, they're all surrounded by nature reserves. Mm-hmm. And it's a bit of chicken and egg, you know, was which came first. But I think there's definitely a measure of the fact that we don't tend to build up the land around nuclear plants. So right. it's almost like the nuclear plants has helped the the nature reserve to to, to stay there, yeah. uh, to exist. And, the, yeah, one of the big oppositions to, to Sizewell C comes from the uh, bird a bird charity here called RSPB. They have a, a few reserves near Sizewell B. And where they want to build Sizewell C is not on the reserve, but it is on, there is a segment they need to take from a, an area of sort of special scientific interest. Um, they need to put a road through to get to get construction materials in or something like that. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, there's all sorts of compensation in place to make up for that. So there's a road that comes in and so they lose a bit of land from this special area, but then they, they bought a, a whole bunch of farmland yeah. around the site and they're converting that into a nature reserve. And so there's some really nice work they're doing. And at Hinkley Point C, it's the same. If you go onto their website, you can see the things they do. Is there, we're under so much pressure in our industry. The companies are, are really desperate to do everything they can and they do some really great environmental work. But yeah, so size will be. Um, next to it is, is one of the nature reserves of that's the, probably one of the most important in the whole of the UK. And there's all sorts of rare birds that have moved in there in the last 50, 60 years. But it's, it's funny, but RSPV don't seem to pick up the fact that, well, all those birds are there now and they don't seem to be struggling. And this, there was a size will A that's been shut down. Now there's a size will B. So why would adding size will C, bearing in mind it's still one or two miles from the, the main reserve they're concerned about, why would that suddenly kill all the birds? It, it just doesn't, and does doesn't this, make sense. Does this, birding, does this birding group like just have a general um, NIMBY approach to everything? Like, do they do they oppose all of the offshore wind turbines on the impact <laughs> on birds, for instance, or no? That's the thing. Yes, they. I guess that maybe that's just yeah, they're general NIMBYs. No, I love that. I love RSPB. I'm, uh-huh. I'm really, I'm, the, I'm not, a, you know, like a, a, a super keen birder, but I, I, you know, I know more than most and I, I have my binoculars and my books and whenever I'm in one of these areas, I like to go out and see what, I, what birds I can find. And so, I, I you know, I'm, I, I love all of that, but I think on energy, you're right that there's this nimbyism or they're not thinking enough about, they're not eco-modernists, right? They're not humanists. Right. Right. Everything is about no harm at all to nature, but they're not thinking about what harm that does to humans. Mm-hmm. Um, so they they oppose Cleve Hill, which is the largest solar farm um, planned for the for the UK, uh, which will be I forget something like a million solar panels. And so it's, it's- it's funny you mentioned that. I lived in the UK when I was eight years old for a year. I remember it being a pretty rainy, foggy, cloudy <laughs> place. What What's going on with, with solar in the UK? I've, and I've read uh, Sir David Mackay's uh, Sustainable Energy Without mm-hmm. the Hot Air, which is a, a great book, which just does what he calls kind of back of the envelope calculations. Um, you know, which, which you know, he's, he says, like, this, this may not be 100% accurate, but this gives us an idea anyway. Yeah. We can make generous assumptions about solar panels and their efficiency and their capacity factors and things. And we can just get a sense of, okay, how much of the countryside yeah. do we need to blanket in solar panels? But, like, what's the, what's the capacity factors like in the UK for solar? I mean, you guys are as far north as, as where I am in Canada, I believe. Um, yeah. We hit about not, 12% not- in my province, I think. 
Yeah, I mean, similar. It's, it might even be a little bit less, more like 11, I think, is the right. number that they, the, the energy and just, uh, ministry use. So, yeah, he, David Mackay, uh, may he rest in peace, because he died a few years ago of cancer, sadly. Um, he was a fantastic uh, physicist, I think a physicist or mathematician from, uh, from the UK, and he actually was the chief scientific advisor in the late noughties. So I think a lot of the pro-nuclear stuff, actually he had, you know, he had a big influence there uh, on what government did. And he always, he always said, I'm not, I'm not um, pro or anti-renewables. I'm not pro-nuclear. I'm just pro-math. <laughs> That's why he said, I'm pro-renewables, but I'm also pro-maths. Right, maths right. with an S because he's British. <laughs> maths, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so from the solar, the mo- he, he looks at the physics. So there is a physical limit to what you can get from a solar panel on a you know, given uh, amount of land. And for example, if we look at the, the some of the latest modeling that comes from the government, they, they're saying, okay, we need 120 gigawatt of solar, which if you work that out, it's like over 500 square miles of solar. Um, wow. And we're... You know, a small country, especially the sunny part, which tends to be the south, which is also where everyone lives. Because remember, Scotland, you know, we're, Scotland's much less uh, populated than, to say, the south of England. And the south of England is where all the solar panels are because it's the place that's got the most sun. Mm-hmm. So, where are we going to put 500 square miles of solar panels? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I might, might some bird habitat, but. Yeah. It might, as might the 120 gigawatt of offshore winds, which is also planned. So, yeah, I mean, so Boris Johnson said, you know, every household in the UK is going to be run by wind power by 2030. That that was another headline that came across my feed a little while ago. Can you tell us a little bit more about those plans or what he was referencing? Yeah, I believe the idea is to produce 40 gigawatt. So... <laughs> This is their wording, produce 40 gigawatt of offshore wind. So even there, you already, you don't produce gigawatts, you produce gigawatt hours. And and I think it's this classic energy versus power problem where you can't really say you'll power every house from wind because does that mean the lights will go off when the wind stops? You know, yeah. It doesn't work like that. You have to produce power. power. Electricity is produced and instantaneously consumed. And so yeah, to so say... I wouldn't, my, I wouldn't want my hospital um, powered 50% of the time, <laughs> unpredictably. Right. So there's already a little bit of a sleight of hand there. But obviously what they're saying is if we have 40 gigawatt of wind by 2030, then that will produce however many terawatt hours they claim that is. And that will be the same as the consumption of all homes in the UK. But it doesn't mean that that, you know, we're not matching the wind turbines to the, to household consumption. It's just not possible. Yeah. So I think this is going to help us kind of um, move on into talking a bit more about nuclear and, and finance, because that seems to be a really, really big issue here. Um, you have these EPRs being built at Hinkley Point that are, you know, have cost a lot and are over budget, mm. et cetera. But before we jump there, um, you know, there's there's a reason why I think governments around the world are, are pursuing wind and solar in these ways. And it seems to align well with the financial instruments um, that we have. You talked a little bit about this nuclear renaissance um, under the labor government in the early 2000s. And from what I understand from that, um, probably fitting very much in with the sort of third way neoliberal approach mm-hmm. of the of the Blair government that was to um, finance it all, all privately, I'm guessing. That's right. Yeah, so the idea was we need nuclear, but, uh, you know, it's all about markets now. You know, state state doesn't state doesn't build, state doesn't pay for things like this anymore. And that certainly, that, that was, because that, from the 1990s when we started to privatize, sell off, you know, not just electricity, but almost everything in the UK is privatized pretty much apart from the NHS. Wow. Uh, so the and it, it worked quite well because um, you know electricity demand wasn't growing that much. There wasn't the pressure of climate change, and so actually just letting the markets run things. You know, markets are good at certain things. You know, they're good at running things efficiently. 
whereas if you have the public sector running everything, okay, you you, t- you can have some excesses. That that is true. But what they what we've now realised is that actually building something like a nuclear plant is just it's just too big for private capital to fund. You know, they can you can get maybe a few billion, four billion, but if you're talking twenty three billion pounds. Uh, which is what Hinkley Point C will cost, then, you know, what private entity is going to put money into that, considering that it's not going to generate any revenue for 10 years? Yeah, I mean, in in Canada, um, one of our, like we have, all our our nuclear plants are publicly owned, but one of them is a public-private partnership. Uh, It's called Bruce Power. And um, and it's interesting, one of their main investors is actually a municipal workers pension. And when you think about Hmm. a pension, a very good financial instrument for generating, you know, a steady long-term payoff. Um, <clears throat> and so probably that's the reason why they've invested in, in the plant. <clears throat> Excuse me. But, um, you know, you mentioned that $23 billion. Is that the cost? Or Because when we talk about nuclear, I, I, I think a, a, quote, a quote that uh, I attribute to you or that I've, I've learned from you is it's all about the cost of capital and the capital cost. So <laughs> is that $23 billion taking into account that kind of the amount of interest? Like if the interest on the, the loans um, are much lower, does that does that mean it's not $23 billion? Yeah, don't, don't uh, steal it from me. I stole them from someone else. So <laughs> those are Tim Stone's words. Um, so, yeah, he, he's always saying, so he's the chair of the, the chairman of the Nuclear Industry Association. And that's what he's always saying, that there's only two numbers that matter in nuclear construction, capital cost and the cost of capital. So the, the, the crazy thing is that two thirds of the cost of building Hinkley is down to the cost of finance. The two thirds of the cost of building a nuclear power plant is down to the cost of the finance of borrowing money. So for fourteen billion dollars of that twenty three, my math's atrocious, but I think that's about right. Is uh, is just the, is the basically the interest payments? Yeah, it, it, well, it's more about um, the electricity price. So the the deal that was done, and so. This is what the government realized that it, going back to the Blair area, this started, but it really, the deals were signed in the next government, which was the, co- the coalition between the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats. They realized that, okay, we need to do something because you know, EDF saying we'll build Hinkley, but we don't want to go too much out on a limb. You've got to give us something. So they said, government said, okay, we'll do this contract for difference, which is a a model that guarantees a kind of a price floor and a price ceiling for electricity generated from the project. Okay. And a deal was signed. Uh, this is going back a few years, but it was £92.50. So I think with inflation, it's a little bit over £100 uh, per megawatt hour. And that's bearing in mind that the wholesale cost of electricity right now is around 40 megawatt, uh, £40 pounds per megawatt hour. So it's it's, it looks expensive, right? Um, you, the backdrop of this is that offshore wind now, with similar uh, cost agreements, the, their electricity costs are coming down towards 40, 50 pounds per megawatt hour. Now, of course, a few years ago, they were at 200. Mm, interesting. And the price has come down because they've got better in it because they've built so many. But mm. people forget that. Uh, but yeah, the, that, the fact of the matter is that if the nuclear if nuclear projects in the UK were financed in a different way, they would be a lot cheaper. Okay, so I'm going to move you into Ten Downing Street, and you tell me how you're going to finance your nuclear plants. For your, uh, we, we're, you know, we're going to all of our electric infrastructure <laughs> yeah. by the time we're supposed to be net zero in 2050, all the current stuff is gone. How are you going to get prepped for that? And how are you going to finance your your nuclear build out? Is there a way to do this? <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, you'd be a fool if you let me decide that. Um, <laughs> there are much more qualified people. But it, it all comes down to the cost of borrowing. So the the cost of borrowing uh, the money is about 9%. So imagine you borrowed some, imagine borrowing billions of pounds at 9% and not being able to pay the bank back for like 10 years or more. Um, so that racks up quite quickly as you can imagine, whereas governments can borrow at, say, 2% or, or even maybe less than that in the current climate. 
Um, so the difference between borrowing at 2% and 9% is massive. That would mean, borrowing at 2% would mean the government was issue, effectively issuing government debt to pay um, for the project. So that that might happen, but that the government's still a little bit allergic to that. And what, uh, what are they allergic to just for, like, for ideological reasons? Or I mean, to me, this, I mean, I'm uh, clearly quite biased here, but it makes a lot of sense. Once, once the once the plant's built, um, you know the electricity produced is is very cheap, uh, yeah. and reliable, and it's always on, and it's low carbon, and you know it should meet every ESG um, requirement in the, in the mm. planet. But uh, those are my biases speaking. But just from a financial sense, I mean, you know the 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 French nuclear fleet has provided an enormous source of wealth for the UK. I mean, they export tons of electricity to their their neighbors, including the UK. Um, is there like is what's the reason that the government would be very hesitant to do that? Would it affect their um, their like their ratings or something? I'm just I'm yeah. So they they've yeah. set themselves certain fiscal constraints. I th- and I think a lot of this came. Some of it's actually you know it's in law. So some of it comes from um, things that happened after the financial crisis and about go- government debt levels. Mm. Um, and you can argue whether you know that was a, it's like a. It's not true that the government levels caused a crisis uh, of 2008-9. It was a housing bubble. But anyway, that was the that was the the fashionable thing at the time, and it's still sort of hanging around. Um, but so that if the government was to fund it directly, then they, the the debt would appear on their books. So they don't yeah. want that. Yeah. So what they're what they're looking at is a more of a, a hybrid kind of approach but but you're you're right i agree with you that you know there are limits to what what free markets can do um and, and energy particularly electricity you know it's a social good and, and climate change is a global social issue um and so what is the point of a government if they're if that's the kind of thing that they don't sit up and think, right, we need to do something because private companies, they're going to look at, uh, I need to make a return in two years, five maybe, or I want all my money back within 10 or whatever. They're not thinking 60, 80, 100 years. And, and that that's fair enough. You know, if I was investing in something and someone said, the return's pretty far away, but it's going to be good for the planet. Well, <clears throat> just not going to do it. Uh, so that's where government needs to step in. And take responsibility, yeah, and we have this this legally binding uh, target to to get to net zero. So it's not like there's not things in place that should be pushing them towards that. It's it's very interesting. I, I've I've you know I work in healthcare. I work in uh, we have a system. It's not quite like the NHS, but it was inspired by the NHS in Canada. We have a Medicare system, um, you know, where we all pay in with our taxes, and we have a single payer system basically. Um, you know, our hospitals are actually private non-for-profit. So it's not like the UK in that regard, um, but a lot of similarities. And, you know, I was having a discussion with uh, Ted Nordhaus from the Breakthrough Institute, and we were talking a bit about climate change and making this comparison to it being like diabetes um, and needing sort of chronic management. And, and I, you know, it's, it's had me thinking about, you know, health as a service and energy as a service and how they're both really essential goods. And we're seeing the consequences of say like the blackouts in Texas, <laughs> the impacts that has mm. on health. Um, and really that these are not the places where markets do their best work. Certainly healthcare in the U S is uh, certain people can get excellent healthcare. Um, but you know, climate change affects every single one of us um, mm. and energy affects every single one of us. And you know, a system that can provide certain standards, right? Whether that's getting to a certain level of CO2 per kilowatt hour as a guarantee or getting to a certain level of, of provision of a, of a service, this really seems like an area where the government um, really needs to step in. That's but, right. you know, on a side note, you know, we're talking about these 9% interest rates. I mean, let's be real. Um, the world is, uh, there's certain kind of real politic that underlies a lot of decisions and financial decisions. I mean, some people are getting rich off of off of these nine percent interest rates. I mean, you show me an investment where I can get a nine percent return. That's that's quite attractive to me. Um, so, is there is that part of an element? Is there a certain sort of financial class that's that benefits from the status quo um, that would be hurt by the government, you know, making these kind of investments? Um, I don't think so. I think I think the nine percent is is just a reflection of the risk 
because mm-hmm. you're talking about giving someone a big chunk of money and they're saying, oh, yeah, I'll give you it back. But, you know, I can't really afford to do it until 10 years from now when right. I built this complex machine. It, yeah. You know, so you got to, there's a cost to that. It's, it's a real it's risk. Like- it's the price of waiting on that return, I guess, as well, because you're not getting any money back until... That's right. Yeah. So the model that is sort of... Well, there's a government consultation at the moment on is called the Regulated Asset Base Model. I don't really want to go into the details of how it works, but it's uh, it, there are different ways of doing it, but essentially private money goes in, but there's a regulator that is monitoring the construction and saying, okay... So far, you know, so many billion have been spent um, and the private investors can get a return while the thing is still being constructed. So Mm -hmm. you don't have to wait. And so that brings down the risk. So that brings down the interest rate to maybe four to six percent. And that's a massive, a massive drop because. And so we said uh, it's around 100 pounds, say the current model at nine percent. We can knock a billion off the, the, the capital costs, and that's only going to save eight pounds per megawatt hour. But if we knock 1% off the interest rate, that saves 13 pounds. Mm-hmm. So it's a much bigger effect to improve the financing than even reducing the capital cost. And that's happening anyway. So there's a two unit plant at Hinkley. It's already looking to be, I don't want to throw, I'll get the number wrong, but it's, so, it's already cheaper than unit one, unit two. Right. And they're hoping again to see more cost reductions if they go to size. We'll see and repeat it. They believe they can bring down the cost again, and then obviously a third, a fourth, a fifth plant would would cost should come down even more. So size will see is up in the air still. I've heard things kind of going back and forth. Certainly that article that that from the Independent talking about investors shunning size will see doesn't look good. Um, if the government is to do kind of what we're suggesting here. Um, and take a, a more muscular role in financing this and take advantage of you know the extremely low interest rates available right now, that's going to require the public's you know permission and consent to, to buy into doing that. That's a, a large investment of public funds and public debt. Um, can you tell me a little bit about attitudes towards nuclear in the UK right now, what the hangups are? I mean, it seems like there's a different sort of set of priorities in, in terms of people's opinions on nuclear, whether I think it's safety or attachment to yeah. a former form of governance in, in Asia or something like that. But what, what's what's the dominant sort of feeling towards nuclear in the UK? What are the objections? I would say the number one objection is people believe it's expensive. Mm-hmm. Actually, more than, even the, than the safety argument or waste. But it, you can, I think it's this, the public has similar opinions about nuclear. If you just ask people do like nuclear, you will get the standard response you would get pretty much anywhere in the world. But if you ask them something like, do you think, uh, considering you know the role of nuclear in, in tackling climate change, do you think it's a good idea to keep the current plants to build new ones? Then you get a different answer. Yeah. Because it's all about how it's how it's framed. People have a most people go through their lives, they don't worry too much about where the energy comes from and that's that's fair enough why should you have to you should just be able to switch on the light and it should just work so most people haven't sat down and thought about it so whenever you see surveys this is why i'm always a bit skeptical of what it actually means Mm -hmm. so you know in, in terms of um those opinions on cost i mean obviously you make comparisons right what are the other options on the table you're mentioning wind is is going down massively in in cost what are, you know, wind suffers from intermittency. What are what are the plans to, we were talking about, you know, powering all these homes on wind and the fact that that power is not going to be available all the time or you'll be having brownouts and blackouts if that was truly what you're running your house on. So what what are the sort of suggestions that are being made to, um, to firm up wind and how would that impact the price of wind in your opinion? I know I'm asking a pretty specific question, but just give me your vague <laughs> sentiments on that unless you've done the math yourself. Or this is where it gets complicated because there's a difference between cost and value. Um, and so people are very, there's a lot of people who are very fond of saying now, renewables are so cheap, we just need solar and wind. But to me, it's almost like, well, if they're not cheap, why the hell would we ever build them? Because 
they're not providing the same kind of service that even fossil fuels provide in terms of reliability. And they're certainly not providing what nuclear does, which is reliable power that's also clean. So, they, they, I mean, they, bet, they better be cheap, otherwise, really, we shouldn't be doing them at all, considering mm. we, can do, we can do nuclear. What are we going to do to firm up solar, solar and wind? Well, uh, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of talk of, oh, batteries here, hydrogen there. But really, there's no firm plan. So the, at the moment, it's we're going to build. Well, we're going to. Some of the modelling looks at up to 120 gigawatt offshore wind, 120 gigawatt solar. I mean, that imagine if that actually happened and we hadn't invented some magical way to store the energy, which everyone seems to be relying on. Then that's just going to blow up the grid. Basically, it's just not going to work. And we'd, and we'd be we'd be curtailing so much. I mean, we're already curtailing. So sorry, that's a technical word. So times where you you don't you can't use the wind and uh, the electricity being produced by wind. Uh, you have to turn them off, mm-hmm. uh, turn the turbines off, disconnect them from the grid. And we're already spending two hundred million pounds a year on on wind uh, farm constraint payments, as they're called, and that's only going to grow. As we add more and more renewables, so as part, of, as part of a subsidy, you pay the wind producers um, for the power that they're not able to deliver to the grid because the grid can't physically use it because they're yeah. overproducing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's a, this is why there are such great investments because it doesn't matter whether it's needed or not, you still get paid. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean Warren Buffett said that wind only makes sense to invest in because of the subsidies. But we, we were you're talking about 120 gigawatts of wind, 120 gigawatts of solar. I mean, that's very hard to imagine. You know, I think David Mackay did a good job of that in, in sustainable energy without the hot air, you know, with maps and sort of showing, OK, this is how much land it's going to take up. Um, yeah. But one of the I can give you an idea of, of how much that would be if that if that's. Well, let me, let me finish the thought and then and then go ahead and do that. But one of the you, the other thing you mentioned is that, you know, everything, everything we've built so far um, will be offline by 2050. You know, when when the wind turbines and solar panels in probably about a 20, 30 year maximum lifespan. Um, and, you know, there's a similar plan or a 100% renewables plan that's, you know, held up by a lot of politicians and intellectuals, um, Mark Z. Jacobson's roadmaps. Um, and, you know, there's been some analysis done. And one of those looks at, OK, getting to zero by 2050 um, and the amount of solar panels that would need to be installed. And it's billions of square meters. Um, but you would because because, you know, you're installing them, you're installing them yearly, yearly adding to the fleet. But then the ones you installed now are breaking down by 2050. So you'd need to be um, replacing one point two three million square meters of solar panels every day forever, according wow. to Mark D. Jacobson's plan. Right. So, you know, I guess that's job creation to a certain degree. But um, <laughs> you know, like something that's that's brought up a lot that I hear is this concept of like, well, we need to get we have 12 years, we've got 10 years, we've got eight years and nuclear is not fast enough. But, you know, there's this concept of durability. We need we need climate solutions that are dense and durable so that we're not constantly chasing our tail, replacing stuff when it breaks down, because it's not about, OK, we magically get to net zero by 2050 and then we can allow carbon emissions to go back up again. You know, it's this is forever um, in terms of what's what's needed for climate. So. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, a, it's an interesting question when you start talking about that scale. Like right now, you know, I mean, certain places you see a lot of uh, wind infrastructure and solar panels, but I mean, that is a, a fraction, maybe 1% or 2% of what's what's being planned in terms of these numbers, if I'm correct. Yeah, so so onshore wind, um, it might start to come back now, but it's it was effectively, they took away the subsidies for it about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So you could still do it, but you didn't get, subsidies so it kind of died out which is interesting to think about without subsidies it died out but offshore wind has been really supported but if you think about it where are you going to build first you're going to build in the best places so we kind of we're already starting to fill up the best sites for offshore wind and if you look at if your listeners want to go online and look up some of the projects that is in the UK pipeline now and how, just how far offshore they are is, is quite insane and the size the, the area they'll have to cover um, they're going to so they, they can't be traditional turbines they've got to be floating offshore turbines which are still really 
in a kind of demonstration phase. Floating offshore, wow. Yeah, it's it's crazy, but there's there's ways of it comes from an oil oil and gas technology. Right. There's, there's a there's a big um, shift for people who work in the North Sea, which is our sort of the sea off our northeast coast. Um, in oil and gas, a lot of those people are transitioning into uh, wind, which is interesting. But the the biggest turbines, wind turbines now, are about maybe twelve megawatt from GE. I think they offer a twelve megawatt. That's that's already the size of the Eiffel Tower. Wow. Um, but if we assume a twenty megawatt turbine, so <laughs> almost twice the size of that, probably, then. For that 120 gigawatt number, you'd need 6,000 floating offshore wind turbines, which means you've got to build about 200 of them every year, starting in 2025, to, to meet that target. Eiffel Tower, yeah. And like, where, where are these things getting built? I, I did see an interesting story. Um, it was the GMB union representative, Warren uh, Kenny. Um, and they were actually, the union was calling for a moratorium on offshore wind until the um, supply chain was indigenized in the way that the nuclear supply chain is in the UK, where I understand even though um, EDF is, is building the nuclear plants, it's supporting a local manufacturing industry. So the labor unions were, I think, very upset because um, a lot of there's a lot of industrial, you know, I'm not sure what the, the terms, but milling and uh, forging and et cetera, you know, that would be required for building wind tur turbines. And those areas are, are being kind of outcompeted. And I think a lot of the, the offshore wind infrastructure is, is being imported from uh, from China and other places. So how does that play out? I mean, there's this talk of, uh, you know, England's famous for the industrial revolution on the back mm -hmm. of coal. You guys have phased out coal. There's this new language that I think is kind of interesting, this green industrial revolution. Um, how does how does wind play into that? Is, is, is there a significant amount of wind being built you know, in country, is it bringing those those benefits in terms of labor and unions and jobs and everything? It's it's a struggle. The the domestic content is still quite low for offshore wind. So I'm a member of Prospect Union, and that includes nuclear, but also some fossil and includes renewables people too. And it is uh, it is a challenge. The renewables industry is a challenge, and the the jobs that produced are not as I guess secure. It's not as it's not as it's not very unionized. So we don't have that many members from offshore wind uh, compared to nuclear. The penetration of the union in the nu in nuclear sector is much higher. And there's when you when you speak to the offshore people within the union, they're often moaning that it's yeah that the domestic content is not where it should be, and that the current structure of how the projects are funded pushing down this the agreed strike price for electricity um it's really it's meaning that people are kind of not cutting corners but they're not taking on apprentices they're not training up the next generation of mm -hmm. people to to follow and it's just kind of the delivery teams and the, the the bare minimum and then the turbines are coming some you know there is some some activity in the UK, but a lot of them are coming from other countries, as you say, from you know the likes of Siemens or, or GE, right, or right. maybe even from Asia. And the main developer is actually a, a Norwegian. Um, this this the Norwegian state-owned oil company is our main offshore wind developer, so it's interesting as well. Oh, Norway! They have such perfect green electricity, <laughs> such a. <laughs> Yeah. So maybe just to close off, um, you know, for, again, from what you're saying, the uh, the Magnox, uh, the first generation of, of nuclear in the UK is all in decommissioning. Um, the the AGRs, um, which is probably the majority of the active fleet, is is being phased yeah. out. And then you have um, Hinkley. And so Sizewell C is kind of um, the only planned project. Um, can you tell me a little bit about, um, you know, I'm aware of the work of Xeon Lights. She did a lot of campaigning yeah. around Sizewell C. Where do things stand? What is the what does it also look like in terms of the the activist or advocacy community in the UK arguing for nuclear? It, what's your sense? Is it a, is it a movement? Is it is it building into something? Is it popular? Uh, where where do you see things going in that regard? I think there is, as always, a very vocal. And I think you've said this before. Minority of anti nuclear people who turn up at the right events and make a a lot of noise. 
but but most people i think the british are famous for being a bit more pragmatic when it comes down to it um and making the sensible decision so i think we have that on our side we have the fact that labor and conservatives both have always supported nuclear some of the other french parties don't but they really don't matter in our electoral system because the way it is the way it, the way it works yeah zion lights has done really good work um and and i would say what she's done is really the only proper activism but she's kind of been a bit of a lightning rod and has drawn a lot of uh people to her that were maybe trying to do their thing in their own way um but, she, but bringing them together has become more effective and there's been better coverage the last few years in uh, the bbc uh, and other and news outlets financial times as, as well as some supportive people other left-leaning maybe papers not so supportive unfortunately um, but maybe they'll come around to it eventually they do have some journalists like um, George Monbiot and Mark Linus who are very famous environmentalists here who are also pro-nuclear um, but for some reason people forget that and don't invite them to talk about about nuclear so David we've uh, we've talked about size we'll see um, Obviously, there's another um, stream of nuclear that's being proposed for the future, and that's um, an SMR-based solution, I think, based upon the, the Rolls-Royce yeah. design. Can you, can you fill us in a little bit on that? Yeah, there's a, well, there's, that's the, the tip of the iceberg, really. There's, there's quite an ecosystem here now of, of developers. Um, so the, I guess starting with Rolls-Royce, they're leading a consortium of it's quite a, quite a big consortium of engineering companies here in the UK, and they're calling it the UK SMR. So it's really it's like a an economic PWR if you if you if you, if you want to put a name to it. It's about I think 440 megawatts. It's not very small. It's actually the same size as our AGRs, right. but of course a completely completely different technology. And uh, Rolls Royce's experience is that they build the reactors for our submarines, our nuclear submarines. So they know how to build a PWR, but they've never done anything. And they know how to do commercial civilian stuff like they make half the world's um, aero engines, for mm. example. And so, but they have this idea now that we should build this, these SMRs, which they, they're saying it's like nuclear as a, as a product. They're not selling a reactor, they're selling a, an electricity generating plant and so they're they're trying to optimize everything so they can use off the shelf kind of components that are within that's why they've gone for that size because that's the the size of the gas combined cycle gas turbine industry and so they can use a lot of those components and we'll see how that goes the government here has put quite a bit of money in a few hundred million pounds and again it sort of fits into this agenda of leveling up the regions which is the word, the phrase they use. So reducing that regional inequality is Rolls-Royce to say, okay, we're going to build, we want to build 16 of these across mm. the UK, uh, England and Wales. And again, it's, it's, it's basically where there's been nuclear plants before. And we want to bring, you know, jobs and money to areas that are stagnating. And so it sort of fits into that agenda quite nicely. That's, yeah. And beyond, no, yeah, sorry, I mean, that's, that's very interesting how it's how it's fitting into the kind of politics of, of trying to revitalize these regions. Just you, you said it, it is a PWR design, or is it a is it an advanced design? Is it a high temperature design? <laughs> it's a PWR, uh, but it's 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 got some innovations, but they're not the innovations are not around the core design. Okay. Of, um, well, there's there's some there's some tweaks, but it's they've kind of got passive safety and um some some new innovations if you like but they've actually make a point of saying we don't want to innovate too much we want to just use the, the tried and tested approaches because we're trying to make this uh an economic um project it's it's not a science project right. okay. it's how do we make electricity so it's an interesting approach and they've got a really nice architectural design as well it's like this curving caterpillar kind of certainly thing. The, the building looks more like an art gallery than a than a plant yeah we'll see what happens when the civil engineers get their right, hands on right. it but yeah the, the architectural design's yeah. good 
And yeah, so beyond that, we've got uh, the likes of Maltex, who you'll know quite well because they're operating in, in Canada as well. And so that's a Molten Salts uh, startup. And they want to, they, they've got like fast reactors, they've got um, thermal, thermal reactors, and they want to burn waste. And I know you have your thoughts on whether it's worth burning waste, but anyway, what they're doing. Um, and then you've got stuff at the micro end. Um, so, sorry, Maltex is kind of a modular design, but it could get up to a gigawatt in size. Um, and then at the micro end, we've got companies like Urenco, who are actually the enrichment company here. So they enrich the, the fuel that, um, that's used in UK plants. They've got a design for a micro reactor that's a high temperature gas reactor. So it's going back. We didn't really talk about it, but the UK heritage is in gas mm -hmm. reactors. Uh, so now we're going back potentially uh, on a micro scale. So it's like 15 megawatt thermal uh, high temperature gas reactor. And they, again, they, they, theirs is all, their project's all about the economics. So they're trying to target steel mills, ceramic uh, fabrication, glass, all these industries that need high mm -hmm. temperature heat. And of course, hydrogen production. Mm -hmm. Uh, so they've got a bunch of government funding, and they're they're kind of in the bit of an earlier stage, maybe than 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 Rolls Royce, but something to keep an eye on. Well, it's, it sounds like there's a lot a lot on the table right now. We could do a, a whole episode, I'm sure, delving into that, and and maybe we will. Um, but yeah, yeah. Let's, let's leave it at that for now. It's been a real pleasure having you on on the show. I've I've learned a lot. Um, <laughs> you were a humble guest when I asked you to come on, and definitely exceeded my expectations in terms of. Uh, you know, getting way more out of this interview than, than I'd planned. So, so thanks again for coming on the show. It's, it's been a real pleasure having you on. Oh, it's my pleasure. All right. Take good care. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.